Support for Wavemakers comes from listeners like you and the Tampa Bay Times. The Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper is available around the Tampa Bay area and online at tampabay.com. Thanks to the Tampa Bay Times for their support. Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And today's program is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any phone calls or emails. Our guest today is Bob Plunkett. He made waves for nearly 40 years as a gossip columnist at Sarasota Magazine. And now at the age of 78, he's caught the attention of the likes of The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Paris Review, thanks to the re-release of his 1983 comic novel, My Search for Warren Harding. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you, thank you. Um, Bob, the, the headline of the New Yorker article is one of the funniest, gayest writers is finally becoming famous. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there in that headline, but let's start with the statement that you're finally becoming famous. Did you think it would take this long? Um, <clears throat> no, I didn't. I thought it would happen instantaneously 40 years ago, <laughs> but it did not. What, what, so at 78 now, you've been written up in the New Yorker, the New York Times, the Paris Review. Your book is re-released at, prior to this point, which I would say perhaps maybe is the peak of your career. What would you have said was the peak of your career? It's been, you know, been a long one. Um, <clears throat> the peak of my career was, was working with Madonna, as shallow as that sounds. But that was... Uh, the most interesting part of it. Now, in what context did you work with her? Um, she optioned the movie rights to my second novel, Love Junkie, which we're not discussing today, but she did. And um, we had uh, some long conversations about it. She invited me over to her house. And um, we kind of became friends. It was very interesting. How did how did you uh, end up working with her? Did you just get a call one day? Hi, this is Madonna. She read the book. She's a big reader. Um, in fact, there's that famous quote of hers uh, when somebody asked her about sex, and she said, "Sex? I'd rather read a book." <laughs> and she, uh, I think she really would. And for some reason, she identified with the uh, main character. Don't ask me why, because the main character is a, um, a very meek, meek, mild housewife from Westchester County. But uh, for some reason, she saw herself in that character and fell in love with the book. But let's talk about your first book, because the first book did get a lot of attention when it was first published. And that must have given you, as you mentioned... You know, the, the hope that it was, there was going to be more to come after that. So what was that like to have your first book published and to get that attention? <clears throat> well, it, it, you know, you never get enough attention. <laughs> uh, so I thought the attention I got when Warren Harding came out was, uh, you know, okay, but not enough. And uh, then it kind of dulled died down and um, you know and I kept writing and published another book and a lot of magazine stuff so you know I was quite content but then gradually things started to um, 
dry up, and I ended up in a trailer park in Florida. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about how you ended up at the trailer in the trailer park in Florida, but um, let's talk more about the book, um, My Search for Warren Harding. We're talking to Bob Plunkett, a Sarasota-based author who, um, 40 years ago, um, his book, My Search for Warren Harding, was published, and it's being re-released. It's been re-released now. Um, in a nutshell, Bob, tell us what the book is about. Um, the book is about a very pompous and self-centered and rather annoying New Yorker named Elliot Weiner, and he's a college professor in history, and his specialty is Warren Harding and his presidency. And he finds out that a mistress of Warren Harding is still alive and lives in a crumbling old mansion in Hollywood Hills. And he realizes that she probably has letters and memorabilia and stuff from her relationship with Harding. And if he can get his hands on it, his career is made. So he sets off for Los Angeles to do this. And that's what the book is about. And at the time it was published, the Washington Post uh, called it one of the top five books of comic American fiction. Um, and I, I'm curious what you think about being categorized in that way. I mean, we when we introduced you, we talked about how this is a comic novel. Did you set out to write a comic novel? No, I thought it was absolutely uh, ordinary fiction. Uh, I, I mean, I was hoping there, there was some funny stuff in it, but... I, it was not. I did not set out to write a comic novel. No. Were you inspired by comic no, novelists uh, as you were, you know, growing up, or or whatever? Was there a comic novelist that you particularly <clears throat> admired and had maybe maybe influenced your work in a way that you weren't even aware? What really influenced my work uh, when I was growing up were a series of women writers who wrote books about everyday life that were uh, nonfiction. Irma Bombeck was one of them. Hmm. Uh, Betty McDonald was one of them. Jean Kerr. And these were women with a rather sharp sense of humor, and they would uh, tell stories about their everyday lives and their raising their children. And for some reason, I just thought they were hilarious. They are hilarious. And they had an enormous effect on my writing. I wanted to write like they did. And do you feel that you accomplished that? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> because I realized that that, uh, that kind of writing can only go so far. And, and that, you know, a novel needs a, a much kind of a deeper... Uh, it's a much deeper process. So I had to teach myself how to develop that. Right. And so I set about doing teaching myself. One of the things about this book, um, your, the, the character, he goes to Los Angeles and what he does is he, he woos a woman he is not attracted to, who is very heavy, correct, in order to um, have access to this information that he is seeking. Um, so some of the humor comes from there and some of it is kind of, um, little maybe edgy and, um, some people would say, um, maybe not politically correct. Is that correct? 
Is that an accurate assessment uh, of how I'm putting it? It is it, terribly politically incorrect. Terrible. So, and that's but, part of the but, humor, yeah. But when I, when I wrote it, I don't even think that term existed, politically incorrect. Right. And so it was not, nobody said, oh, this is politically incorrect. They said this is mean-spirited. And people called it that so, when it came out, mean-spirited? The people who didn't like it, uh, that's what they hated about it. They thought the guy was mean. And, uh, yeah, and other people w- thought it was amusing. Um, is it the kind of book that you think might be able to, might be published these days? Or do you think it would be harder to get it published in this um, time that we're living in? Oh, it would not be published today. I can guarantee you that. Absolutely not. And yet it is being republished. How did that, I know. Isn't, yeah. it, isn't it weird? I it, can't figure it out. So that seems to be okay, but if it was a new piece of fiction, then perhaps they would not be so uh, thrilled to do it. Uh, but I, I, I am curious, though, the uh, New Yorker referred to as the, one of the gayest writers. Did you set out to write a gay novel? No, absolutely not. Because, uh, I'm, you know, I'm very much in the closet when it comes to being gay. <laughs> at least in so, at least uh, true I thought I camouflaged the gayness pretty well. And I did at first. Nobody realized there was a gay element to it at first. Now now it's I guess the world has moved on and they can see it much more clearly. But the main character doesn't even realize he's gay, right? Not not on any conscious level that he could discuss coherently, no. And so this became, a, in many ways, a cult classic. It, it went out of print. I don't know how that feels to have a book published and then it goes out of print. Uh, how does that feel, by the way? Oh, it's a shock for, the, for a day or so. And then, you know, you realize at least it's not cancer. So you get over <laughs> it. But how did it c- come to be that it's now being republished? The book, like you say, did become a a kind of a cult classic, and it developed fans. And uh, they would uh, talk about it with each other and post things online about it. And Some famous fans, too, by the way. Right, Bob? I mean, from what I understand, Larry David is a big fan. Yeah, Larry David was a big fan of it, and... um, Frank Rich, who was, you know, the drama critic for the New York Times for years and years. And, and, and also, um, just as, a, as an aside there, also was the uh, one of the creators behind the TV series Succession, which a lot of people are turned off by because there's not a single redeeming character in that entire show. So I, I find that fascinating that you, we have come to the point where you published a novel where you really didn't have, you had a very unlikable character. And now that's kind of common on TV, you know, and, and I don't know. Well, it's common in our, yeah, yeah, in our lives. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, so getting back to, uh, it, it did become a cult classic and it, it did get uh, some followers, uh, famous folks uh, and not so famous folks, people passing the book around, right? They would find it at used bookstores or whatever. So eventually it found its way to a publisher? How did that work? <clears throat> they, they, um, some of the, quote, fans, you know, had connections, particularly to a publisher called New Directions, which publishes um, 
fiction that's not really all that commercial. It's things like novelists from Nicaragua and um, people like, uh, well, they do Tennessee Williams. They do, uh, who's that lady who lived in Massachusetts? Uh, Emily Dickinson. You know, they, uh, people like that, you know. And um, the people at New Directions really liked it. So they decided maybe this would work. And uh, they, uh, I, I, we watched um, a, uh, a reading that you did in New York. They flew you up there. You had a reading at a bookstore. Um, looks like a, quite a rapt audience, probably a lot of these fans who had been reading it for years. Tell us about that experience. <clears throat> yeah, there were two of them, actually. And, and they were uh, a lot of fun. And um, just as we were starting one of the readings, there was this uh, girl, maybe she was 20 years or, or old or so, and she's in the bookstore. And uh, she said, what's this book about Warren Harding? She wasn't there for the reading. And she said, well, I'm a, I'm related to Warren Harding. She was some, like, great, great, great niece or something. <laughs> so I was so excited. And <laughs> so I was so excited that she left. <laughs> <laughs> so they did you frighten her you never knew who was going to come to one of your readings <laughs> to what extent is there an, an element of historical fiction to this this novel um, all of the Harding stuff and I should explain that there's a lot of um, historical narrative in it so that it, chapters of it read like um, a history book of the Harding uh, presidential administration and his private life. And all of that is true. It has been um, altered a little so that I don't get sued, but basically all the historical stuff in it is true. And why the interest in Warren G. Harding? It was just one of those things that I got obsessed with years and years ago. <clears throat> but he did have a fascinating life. You know, he was a total non-entity, and he ended up uh, president of the United States. Uh, I'm not going to draw any analogies, but um, <laughs> he was very much the um, the Trump of his day, only not anywhere near as clever as Mr. Trump. Interesting. And now, Gordon Lish, uh, was he your editor at Knopf? <clears throat> yes, G Gordon Lish was a famous editor at Knopf. Yeah. Famous editor. And um, a friend of mine is a novelist named Ann Beatty. She showed him the book, and um, he, he kind of fell in love with it, and he was the first editor of the first edition. And your experience with that, editing with such a, a well-known editor, what was that like? Some writers have a great uh, relationship with their editors, and others not so much. How did it go for you? He kept saying, I don't know why I'm publishing this book. It's not literature. <laughs> and that was a little off-putting. But then he would say, however, this is a lot harder to do than literature. So that made me feel a little bit better. <clears throat> and as far as changing things, he changed five words. Holy cow, you know, he, that's got to be a not, record. Um, do hardly any editing at all. And um, your book was did get quite a, a good reaction. Uh, did Knopf then uh, publish your second novel? 
No, no, they wouldn't publish my second novel. Gordon Lish read my second novel, and he said, get it out of here. I hate it. Oh, so where'd you take it? Uh, no. I took it to um, HarperCollins. And it was, it. it was published, and Madonna found it, and uh, we've right. already heard that story. So... Um, so let's talk a little bit about how you became um, a writer because it was that was not your first career path, correct? You you started off in theater and uh, acting. That was what your first passion was. Is that correct? I guess you could say that. Um, you know, I was I got out of college and I uh, like a lot of people back in those days. I went to New York to kind of like make a career. I didn't know what, and I fell into acting, and I worked off off Broadway uh, at places like Cafe La Mama, and <clears throat> it was uh, a, a wild, crazy time. It was very a very, very exciting place to work. You met a lot of very interesting people, some of whom went on to become very famous, and most of whom are now dead and totally forgotten, but it was very creatively exciting. So how did you end up going from that to to writing? Uh, I had a, uh, a day job at a place called the New York State Council on the Arts, and we gave out grants, it was state grants to arts organizations, and I would have to write long reports about the financial situation at the Metropolitan Opera. And... For some reason, thesis came out so funny that we'd have meetings and everybody was in stitches reading my financial reports. That doesn't happen and very often. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I realized maybe I'm on to something. So I decided that I should try and take this a little more seriously and figure out how to write a novel. And you were writing that in your spare time at night, or how did that work? You go to coffee shops? I started or? writing it in my spare time, and then I decided to take a big gamble I quit my job, I got on unemployment, and I went, every day went to the reading room of the New York Public Library and wrote. Wow, that's uh, and lots of things have been uh, written there. Robert Caro famously has done a lot of research and writing at that library. Yes, yes. And you, could, you could see all the wannabe writers sitting there working on their <laughs> novels. Yeah, too. yeah. And but it, it, the plan sort of worked amazingly enough. And then t you've lived all over the world. You were born in Texas, but lived all over the world. Um, um, how did you end up in Sarasota? What brought you to Sarasota? Uh, I was looking for a place to uh, work on my second novel, and my brother had been living in Sarasota, and he was moving, and his house was going to be empty. And I thought, I'll go there for three months and do a little work. And I came here in 1985, and I never left. So that's how I ended up here. And you, were, you wrote a gossip column for Sarasota Magazine for 40 years. Um, yeah. And uh, you called that Mr. Chatterbox. You were called Mr. Chatterbox. Now, the name Mr. Chatterbox did come from a comic novel, correct? Yeah, it comes from Evelyn Waugh's book, um, Vile Bodies. It, so, it, it, Mr. Chatterbox is a continuing character, and various people become Mr. Chatterbox 
at different times in the book because they always get fired for doing something wrong. Um, so 40 years, 40 years as Mr. Chatterbox, you've had some interesting experiences there in Sarasota, one of which involved um, uh, Catherine Harris, who uh, at the time was not the Florida Secretary of State, but she was soon to be the Florida Secretary of State. She wasn't even a, a legislator. She was a, 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 a rich housewife. I don't know. What, Sarasota were, How would you describe her, Bob? A rich Sarasota socialite. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, she had not gone into politics. And in fact, I, I asked her to appear in what was, in effect, a little nightclub act I was doing. And she was like the Vanna White character who would come out and just um, assist me and help me out. And uh, she'd never really been on a stage before. Or she'd never really done any kind of public speaking or anything like that. And she kind of took to it. And it uh, kind of started her career. Well, she and she did do a chicken dance, did perform a chicken yes, dance. Yes, and she did a chicken dance. She did a chicken mm -hmm. dance, but to a certain extent we could say that maybe you're responsible for Catherine Harris, Catherine Harris's political career by giving her the opportunity to speak to an audience and finding herself comfortable with that. Uh, yes, and and um, I, Catherine, and I are still good friends. And the, so, the uh, uh, chicken, I, I, I like her tremendously. I don't judge people by their politics. There was a lot of interest in a videotape of that chicken dance. I understand during the two thousand. Yes, I had uh, a videotape of the chicken dance, and during the uh, the contested election, when Catherine Harrison when was the Secretary of State, yes, President of the United States, yeah. Uh, the National Enquirer found out that I had a tape of her doing the chicken dance, and they wanted very badly and offered me a lot of money. And um, if you'd seen the, the videotape and watched Catherine do the chicken dance, your first thought would be, I don't want this person deciding who the president's going to be. <laughs> so um, I felt very guilty about embarrassing her so i kept it to myself and we ended up with um mr bush's president now you you don't judge people by their political party i respect that um very much uh you have been in sarasota for a long time and i'm sure seen changes there so sarasota now has become sort of this bastion of of the right wing any do you have any sense of what happened how did that happen to sarasota have you have you been watching this slow change, or is it stunning to you? Well, I, you know, again, like, I, I don't particularly want to get, get, get into politics. It was wonderful in the old days because everybody, no matter what the political affiliation was, they were, they were still friends and they still worked together on charity events and things like that. And actually, with the 2000 election, that started to change, and then it became more and more polarized. The Republicans came, became much, much more clever about winning elections, and the Democrats became much, much stupider about elections. And um, the whole thing has turned into a, uh, a situation where there's two sides and they're constantly fighting and bickering, and it's not pleasant and it's not fun. It's not pleasant, not fun. And there's also, uh, you know, we've got Michael Flynn down there and and some... Oh, Michael Flynn, I love him. I just went to hear his uh, speech. You did? You um, love him. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah he's terrific. I mean, he's, he's uh, as, a, as, a, as a personality I want to 
write about is terrific. Right. That way. So you're probably um, finding a lot of that in Sarasota. I mean, there's good fodder for writing something about, you know, just uh, true social is, I think, based true there. True social is based the, 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 the Trump's true social is based there. We have thing. the change at New College. There's, uh, there's a, a lot going oh, on the school there. board, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a tremendous amount going on. And, yeah. and back in the old days, I would have had a ball. But, you know, like I say, I'm 78, and it, it's, uh, it has become so poisonous that I'm pretty much staying out of it. And is there any chance that your book would ever be in a school or or taught in a classroom or or maybe it shouldn't be it shouldn't no, be okay it should be banned it should be banned well that would probably be good totally, for you yeah. if it was banned <laughs> 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 might help your sales if it was if it was banned I'm hoping I'm hoping <laughs> <laughs> um, so we were talking about how you settled in Sarasota, but you were born in Texas, lived all over the world, including in Cuba. Um, and your family left Cuba after the revolution. What was that experience like? Can you tell us about that? Well, we were living in Havana, <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> I loved Havana. It was my favorite place of all the places we ever lived. That was my favorite place. And unfortunately, my father was president of the Cuban Electric Company, which was um, a foreign-owned utility in a country that was becoming communist. And um, things were getting very, very unpleasant. They were having riots in the streets and shooting people at the firing squad. And we decided maybe it was time to get out of Cuba. So we left very, very suddenly, leaving everything behind. Do you have any interest in going back? I've been back. I've been back um, several times. Did you go back to where you were living at the time? Yes. Yeah. And um, it, the, the, we lived in a very fancy suburb, and it had changed so much. And the houses had fallen into total disrepair. Many of them had just crumbled into little pieces. It, it was um, very sad. You know, most people go to Havana and they think, oh, with this this quaint place. And and I just know what Havana used to be, and, and it's become, a, you know, a ruin of what it was, full of very poor people. It's it's very unhappy. It, it's it's crumbling, and, and uh, there is a certain amount of equality in, in Cuba in the sense that everybody's poor except for maybe the government leaders you know oh the, 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 the people who were running it are not poor believe me they right. are not poor right well i think and then people go and they find it to be like almost quaint the old cars and everything and yeah. what 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 the tourists are really seeing is is the poverty and what's happening there but the cuban people themselves are are, are so wonderful and and uh that's oh cubans are great yeah I, I i love cubans they're they're the smartest people in the world they're very and, clever. Uh, I mean, the way they have kept those worse. the way they have what kept those cars going for all these years. Monsters that are running your country. It's it's really awful. It's really a shame. Yeah. Well, and also uh, it's a community with lots of art and music and um, artistic expression. That was what my experience of Cuba was. Yes. Yes. Every restaurant nowadays has a band. Um, I think the government does that on purpose or something. Uh, to give people jobs, but it's that that was fun. Every little coffee shop, every little bodega has a band. 
I did want to ask you, Bob, going back to your experiences in uh, New York City, because eventually you did make your way to New York City after all these uh, other places you had lived around the world. And uh, we mentioned that you had gotten to know, or you mentioned that you'd gotten to know some some uh, famous people. Griffin Dunn is was a friend of yours, and uh, you appeared in a film, uh, After Hours, with Griffin Dunn, directed by Martin, Martin Scorsese. How did that happen, and what was that like? Um, well, Griffin was uh, producing the movie and also starring in it, and... Um, there was a part for this uh, very shy gay guy, and um, they had already cast the part, but Griffin kept thinking, gee, Bob might be good for this. So I, I, uh, he got me an audition with Mr. Scorsese, and um, I immediately realized that Mr. Scorsese, genius that he is, knew virtually nothing about gay men and how they uh, dress, how they act. And I could help him with this. And I did. I explained it to him. <laughs> and, and he got it. So he, uh, he gave me the part. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. I understand that film is going to be re-released soon. Yes, that also has become a cult favorite. Uh, it, 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 when it was first released, it got kind of mediocre reviews, and now it's considered a, uh, a, a real classic. Well, they actually even uh, based one episode of uh, Ted Lasso on that movie. There was one um, episode, I think, in season yeah. two where... Um, Coach Beard goes has this wild night. It's very much like After Hours. It's a, it's a great movie. I, I think it might have even been called After Hours. But yeah, yeah, it was. It was as yeah. a matter of fact, yeah. So yeah, uh -huh. it's, it's speaking of having been in um, a, a, a movie, a Martin Scorsese movie, you've had some uh, lots of experiences that led the New Yorker to say you've had a zealot like life. Um, you were actually at the Sarasota Elementary School when President Bush learned that a second plane had struck the World Trade Center. Um, you were in a movie with Richard Gere that was never released. Um, and you frequented the movie theater where Paul Rubens, the actor who played Pee Wee Herman, was arrested. The late, great Pee Wee late, Herman. late, great Pee Wee Herman. Yeah. Um, and uh, we talked about your um, friendship with Catherine Harris. How is it that you always seem to end up in these... The, these places, at the right place at the right because time, I, was, I guess. Because I was a gossip columnist in a small town. And when you have a job like that, it's your job to be at, the, at everything interesting that's happening in the town. And every once in a while, incredible things happen in a small town. 9-11 uh, uh, being a perfect example, not that it happened here, but the president was here when it happened. Right. So, you know, you these moments of history really happen right in front of you. Because and how did you end up covering it for yeah. your gossip column? Yes. So how did you end up uh, at that elementary school? So many of us have, have seen the, the videos or the photos of the president learning about the well, second plane. The, the uh, President Bush invited me to go on his educational tour of Florida in 2001. And it started out in Jacksonville. 
and um, he made a speech, and there were seminars. And then I got to ride on the uh, press plane to Sarasota. And then the next morning, uh, there was another event, which is the one during which the uh, Twin Towers were attacked. So I was uh, officially part of the press contingent on on that trip. And that was, you know, just out of the blue to stumble into this uh, world-shaking event was quite remarkable. I think you mentioned... Of course, I thought... Yep. Gee, here I am stuck in this stupid school in Florida and the world's falling apart. I, I had no idea that I was right in the middle of part of it. So. Right. Um, so one of the things that you're doing now is you are writing for um, uh, Forum Magazine. Um, that is the magazine of Florida Humanities. Um, and you wrote something recently about... Um, the summer issue that's out now, you wrote about living in a trailer park. Um, tell us about trailer park living. I don't think most people think of a trailer park as a place where an acclaimed writer would be living. Um, well, it's where poor acclaimed writers live. <laughs> um, it, I, I've become fascinated with them as, as a as a a social situation and the kind of people who live here and the way they work. And that's very, very interesting. But believe me, if I had a whole lot of money, I would probably uh, be living somewhere else. But uh, as a place to live, they're, the one I live in anyway is very, very nice. It's gated. It has beautiful winding streets. Uh, everything's very well manicured. There's two swimming pools. So it's, it, you know, I, I'm doing fine living-wise. And the sense of community, is there a, a from what, I've, what, what I read in your, the, the article that you wrote about it, there's a real sense of community that you get in um, a trailer park community or a manufactured home community. I think we call it trailer park. That's almost like a prerogative or, or a, a pejorative. Oh, no, they, pejorative, they don't like yeah. that, but still people, that's what, still what people call them. And there is very much a sense of community because most of them are uh, retired people who've lived somewhere else, and then they retire to Florida and they make friends with their neighbors. And uh, it, it's a very closely knit situation, and everybody takes care of everybody else. So but from to- that point of view, it's it's very uh, satisfactory. And y- you feel you're being watched out for, and um, if there's a problem, the neighbors help. And you were actually um, relocated from one manufactured home community to another uh, after Hurricane Ian. You had a pretty scary experience there. Um, what was that like? Uh, yeah, when when Ian happened, when was that? That was a year ago, September, the yep. end of September, or will be a year ago. Yep. Um, I was living in Englewood in another um trailer park somewhat similar to this one and it was hit directly by the hurricane and um the uh, the trailer was pretty much destroyed and um i sold it as is and moved here and uh, that was that wasn't much fun i'll tell you did did you evacuate or did you try riding out the storm at home 
I tried writing out the storm until it became clear that I better get out of there quick because things were uh, blowing into the trailer and um, the roof was blowing off. So um, I got out of there. But then I came back the next day and lived in, had to live in the ruins of the trailer without electricity or gasoline or food for five days. Because wow. <clears throat> I couldn't go anywhere. You were stuck. You were absolutely stuck. Absolutely stuck, and, and, and uh, you were had to. You all had to depend on each other because you didn't have a lot of. There wasn't help coming immediately, right? It was. It was there slow was to no come. Help. The police never showed up. The fire department never showed up. FEMA never showed up. The National Guard never showed up. The only people who showed up were the Baptist churches, mm-hmm. and they would bring around food, and you would say a prayer with them, and they'd give you some food. And I was eternally grateful. But the other people who showed up, you write in that article, were your neighbors. Oh, yeah. And the neighbors, I was a little standoffish from the neighbors uh, until this happened. And then we had to solve this crisis together. You know, we had to get the trees out of the street. Um, We had to figure out a way to to keep surviving. So we all became best friends. And... um, it was you, you saw a very good side of human nature. It was nice. It was very nice. And part of what you write about in that article is about just the history of the trailer parks and how they, not trailer parks, but um, mobile homes, trailers, how they've evolved over the years um, from what they started. I think they're, they're, they're back in the 40s, 30s, when they were first came out. So you have a, a nice history of, of how those those trailers evolved. You do write quite a bit about architecture, at least for the Forum magazine. Is tell me, tell us about that. Why the interest in architecture? Where does that come from? And is that something that you've studied, or that comes on? from my folks? Okay. And, and I I can't explain it. They were architecture freaks, and you know we were always moving around, so we were always looking for a house. We lived in must have lived in ten or twelve different houses. And my folks were very fussy about where they lived. They always wanted a nice, fancy house. And they ended up hiring a famous architect named Ricardo Legareta, who's a Mexican architect, to design them a house in Mexico City, which was a beautiful, beautiful, extremely modern house. So it's it's like in my DNA. Huh. Um but and yet you're living in a trailer park. How would your parents? What would your parents think of that? <laughs> they don't. They are dead. Thank God. I'm, not that they're, that, they don't have to see that, it. They would. Uh, they would be appalled. <laughs> that's pretty funny. So you're writing next. I think I I hear about Cinderella's Cinderella's castle. Is that correct? You're going to be writing about that for Florida Humanities. Mm-hmm. I just finished it, and it's and it's all running. I have to re- totally rewrite it because of the governor and, and what he's doing with Disney and you know the site. And it's just uh, I just want to write a nice story about Cinderella's castle, but it's turned into this big political event, and it's very difficult to make it work. So uh, what could what, what could possibly what could you possibly say about Cinderella's castle that might be offensive? to anybody um you cannot explain it in, unless you get into the culture war situation 
because I, I, I don't know if you've been following what's going on with the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique. Have you? No, Bibbidi. I have not followed the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique. I know the song okay. Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo from Cinderella, but no. They, they have a, a, in Cinderella's Castle, they have something called the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique. And if you're from ages 3 to 12, you can go there and get dressed up like a princess or a knight. And it's very expensive. It's like $200. And they, they do a makeover. The problem is if a boy wants to get dressed up like a princess, they will gladly do it. Now, in the present situation in Florida, that is playing with fire. Right. So, And that is what's happening in the Cinderella Castle. So it's like the whole thing has been, you know, now it's a a big mess about uh, sexualizing children, transgendering children. It's, you know, it's very sad what's going on. Interesting. And, of course, no big deal for a, a little girl probably to be dressed up in knight's clothes. I, you know, I don't know if any of the girls would actually want to do that because between you and me, the princess outfits are much, much nicer. <laughs> nice outfits. Probably way more comfortable. <laughs> Probably way more comfortable as well. Did you go to Cinderella's yeah. Castle and spend some time in there checking out the architecture? I, I've been there um, yep. uh, enough to not to have to go back. Because one of the things you, I shouldn't say about Forum Magazine is that they're very cheap when about expenses. Mm-hmm. Well, that's okay. So, you can say that it's a nonprofit. They need to be we should cheap probably, about expenses. Uh, we should probably and mention I, that yeah, yeah Janet I work works for, for Florida Humanities. She's edits. Uh, she's well, edits some I'm of your sure stories. Janet knows. Yes. Well, they are a nonprofit, and and they don't have a lot of money to spend, but. I thought you could stay at yeah. Cinderella's Castle. Didn't there used to be a, you could actually spend the night there? I thought that that was an opportunity. Yeah, there was an option. They took a, that over. There's a, a rather tacky looking hotel suite hidden there. And it was uh, theoretically built for Walt Disney. And it, they used to let people win prizes, and they, they, the prize was they got to stay in the suite. But they don't even do that anymore. And I really wanted a tour, and they wouldn't do that. Uh, Disney's very uncooperative at the moment. I think they have too much on their mind. Yeah, definitely. They're under a lot of pressure, let's face it. Um, Yes, they are. Yeah, I know you don't like... I know you don't want to talk about politics much, but you, you, as somebody who is, you know, um, is gay, it must bother you what's happening right now in the country and in the, the state of Florida. Is it troublesome to you, or do you just not look at it, compartmentalize? That's a good question. Uh, You know, I'm so old that I've seen people's attitude toward gayness go from, you know, it's been everything. It's been totally demonized. Uh, You know, your family would disown you and then it became acceptable and now you can even get married you know it, it's like this crazy pendulum that's always going off in some different direction am i unhappy about what's going on now i mean it's disgraceful and it's being done for very craven political 
motives. So, you know, I guess so. But but gay people are amazing. You know, they, they, they're very, very adaptable. And they're not going anywhere. And, you know, and they keep fighting and creating wonderful lives for themselves. Well, I mean, and it was in your lifetime that men, I believe, were arrested for wearing women's clothing. That was illegal. Yeah. Yes, it was. It was. It, you're absolutely right. It was. And, I mean, I think and, that's how Stonewall's uh, the whole Stonewall riot began. Is that they started? The police went in yes, there. And and, I, I was yeah. living in New York at Stonewall, and I remember, uh, you know, the drag queens used to hang on out on the steps of Saint Veronica's Church, which was down the block from Stonewall, and they couldn't wear dresses on the subway because they would be arrested. So they'd um, get to Saint Veronica's and. Um, change their clothes in the lobby yeah, <laughs> and then hang out on the church steps. And, you know, and as awful as that sounds, it was kind of fun. It was, you know, we were outlaws. It was exciting. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they were, people were arrested. I, I When I was in college in Norfolk, Virginia, a friend of mine was a drag queen and he got arrested outside of a, out of a, outside of a, a gay club. Oh, he was in his car and he was taken to jail. He was literally arrested for wearing women's clothes. Yes, but but also at that point in New York, there were artists like Candy Darling and Jackie Curtis, Hollywood Woodlawn working, and uh, you know they yeah. they were uh, drag queens in the most amazing way, and you know enormously talented artists, and um, things were starting to change. They were definitely starting to change, and you were seeing how drag was uh, could be incorporated into art, and how uh, you know amazing these people were. The you know the bravery they had to do that. Well, and then interesting what you have now, which is funny, is um, like uh, in terms of drag, like Harry Styles. I mean, he wears. Dresses. That's that's a thing now. It's a, it's a fashion statement in a lot of ways uh, that men are wearing, you know, dresses and skirts and and dressing. You know, it's more androgynous in terms of of how people dress. So, it's yeah, such a it's such a contradiction. Uh, I I don't think men look good in frilly clothes. It's just me. But <laughs> I just want to say, dresses are comfortable. As a woman, as someone who wears dresses, dresses are more comfortable than pants. Just saying. <laughs> Having that waistband. I, I don't believe that. <laughs> well, Bobby, you each have... one's cut differently. The good thing about pants is they're all the same. True. So you you don't have to adjust to a strange fit. Well, we've only got a few no, more I'm, I'm minutes. I'm a big pants person. <laughs> We've only got a few more minutes left, and if you're just tuning in, we're listening. We're talking to Bob Plunkett, who uh, has uh, is a cult comic novelist whose uh, book "My Search for Warren Harding" was recently republished and uh, to great acclaim, and has written been written up in the New Yorker and the New York Times, and it's been it's great to have you on the show, Bob. I, I, I we should reemphasize that you did write for Sarasota Magazine for decades but now you're retired uh how are you spending your time now is there another novel coming <clears throat> there are um there's one that i'm working on very seriously and um 
I'm also doing freelance. So I'm 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 keeping very very busy, and then um, I've got to walk the dog and um, watch TV a lot and um, <laughs> stuff like that. So can you tell us about um, your the novel that you're working on? I don't want to jinx uh, it, but I I I hate talking about stuff I'm working on. So I'm probably not going to. Okay, that's okay. fine. I am curious, though, about your your approach to writing. Do you write in the morning? At, do you write at night? Do you go to a coffee shop? Or you go at finding a library in Sarasota to go to, like you wrote your first book? We just visited um, Ernest Hemingway's house in Key West, and they told us there he wrote from 6 in the morning till about 2 in the afternoon, and then he started drinking. Yeah. <laughs> they had a very nice studio um, there at his house. Uh, yeah, no, I've been to his house many times. Um, it, it, do you remember the floor in the bathroom, the tile floor in the bathroom? See, that uh, was beautiful. Oh, yeah, that, that Art Deco tool, uh, tile, very very cool. Yeah. So you, uh, what's uh, you, what's, what is your habit? Where do you write and what time of day? Um, I, I write in the morning and um, for usually for a couple hours. And then in the afternoon, I... Uh, do errands, have fun, go swimming. And then after dinner, when things quiet down, I write for a couple hours more. And how do so, you write? What do you use to write? Are you using a laptop or? Uh... I've taught myself to use a laptop. I used to always write on legal pads longhand. And it's it, it's become very inefficient. Right. So my search so, for Warren no, Harding was written out in longhand, up. and then you typed it up? Is that how you did it? That's how everybody did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so what about when you're the gossip column? Now, that you would have been working on a computer, I would take it, I, I would assume? No, I always I always learn everything longhand first. Huh. And, and, and there's, a, there's a reason it's better. It, 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 when you're... It takes a tiny bit longer, and your brain has a tiny bit more time to uh, compose itself, and, and you keep asking yourself, "Is this really what I want?" And it, it so writing longhand, you're, you're I would guess ten percent better than on a laptop. Mm-hmm. But but there's so much convenience gained by just doing it all on a laptop that. Um, you you end up doing it on a laptop. Yeah. And do you think um, you will ever stop writing? You seem like somebody who probably is just compelled to write. You talk about walking the dog and and that sort of thing, but it, it's it it seems like something that you will never stop doing. Well, I don't know. Uh, what would st- what would stop me is is you know the older you get, uh, the stamina goes, the concentration goes, and I think eventually uh, you it, it's too hard to put the words together. I mean, I know a bunch of very old writers now, and it 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 happens to all of them eventually. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not dementia, but they just. They don't have the mental acuity to do it, and they end up like that 
court senator who can't remember where she is or what's going on. Right. Well, just, yeah, word recall. Like. But you, you enjoy the process of writing. I, I, I Personally, as a former uh, newspaper uh, writer, it seems like a lot of work. It's work to me um, to, to write. I, but for many artists, and I would consider you an artist, it's just something they have to do. Is that the way you feel? You enjoy it. You enjoy I, the process. I, I, when, it, when it's going right, it is so much fun. You think, oh, I'm so clever. Look at the sentence I just wrote. <laughs> <laughs> you just propel yourself along out of, out of delight. And uh, that's what I love about it. Um, we've got just a few minutes left, so I want to ask you one final question, Bob. You, we've talked a lot about your, reading, your writing. Tell us, what are you reading? What, what, any books that you can recommend, other than your own, of course? But what inspires you? Where, where, what do you read? Um, I'm reading a lot of books about Melania Trump. Really? Which is kind of a dead end. She's, she's not that interesting. Huh. Uh, is there a wealth of books I, about Melania Trump? Oh, yeah, you know, by people who used to work for now they're writing tell-alls and, you know, those kind of books. Okay. So that sounds like good gossip uh, columnist book, like good co gossip columnist stuff to tell-alls. Yeah, unfortunately, the problem with her is that there really isn't that much to tell. <laughs> you know, I keep looking for the story behind, about Melania Trump, and I just can't find it. Anything else you're um, reading? I'm writing, uh, reading a lot of very superficial books about the Civil War because I actually am working on something about the Civil War. That's what I won't tell you. <laughs> but I'm doing um, research about the Civil War. And where you kind and, of research it? Is that uh, historical fiction or his, uh, history books or source documents? What are you looking at? Where are you doing your research? Oh, oh, you know, diaries from the Civil War period and stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. Um, I look forward to, yeah, to reading whatever you end up producing, Bob, because I have to say that everything I've read by you is just, it just, it just jumps out the page for me. I, I just, you're just a delightful writer, I think. I encourage everyone to try to find your work on uh, the uh, forum magazine, Florida Humanities. And you can also find a lot of your previous uh, work for Sarasota Magazine online, right? If you Google. Uh, yes, there's yes. a tremendous amount of it online and on the Sarasota Magazine website. Yep. Um, all right. Well, Bob, thanks for being with us. We appreciate, appreciate it very much. Um, Bob Plunkett, his book that is out now is My Search for Warren Harding. Um, this is um, Wavemakers, Janet and Tom with Wavemakers on W. MNF Tampa. Thanks, Bob.